0: Uh, We're going to be starting in chapter 3 this morning, so if you have your Bibles you want to turn there or swipe on your devices, uh, you can uh, do that. Um, Just a quick recap, Uh, the subtitle of our series is Who is Jesus? And so throughout the series we've been getting glimpses of who Jesus is and the things that Jesus has come to do, And, and just in summary we've seen how he has Come to bring life to situations filled with death, or to bring life to lives that are filled with death. He's come to bring hope where there is despair, to bring drink to the desert. Desert has this idea of kind of a parched wilderness, and we talked a couple weeks ago about how Jesus turned water into wine, and and this idea that he satisfies us uh, spiritually, primarily, is the way that he satisfies us, but then this flows into other areas of our lives physically as well. And so he is drink in the desert. He, is, he brings truth to falsehood. Where, where false claims are being made, he, he brings truth uh, for us to hear and for us to conform to. And he brings light into darkness. And today we're going to see how um, he brings uh, a fleshy, physical reality, in, in talking in terms of a heart, a heart that's made of stone, he's going to replace it with, hearts of flesh, and he takes old things and he makes them new. So today we're looking at, its I think it's a great story, a story about a man named Nicodemus. So I'm going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 3, and then we are going to, we're going to literally walk through these verses today. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay. So, let's start in verse 1. We're learning about Nicodemus and Nicodemus is described as a Pharisee and as a ruler of the Jews so a Pharisee was basically it's a sect of the Jewish faith of Judaism and so you think denominations at some level for us like Lutherans or Catholics or Baptists I think Baptists are probably the most appropriate because the Pharisees were known to be ardent followers of the law they had lots of laws and and Baptists oftentimes have lots of laws as well uh, but the pharisees as we read through the gospels we oftentimes see them opposing jesus in many instances and so when we think about nicodemus and the fact that he's a pharisee we should think he is a phenomenal rule follower he has memorized for sure he has memorized the first of our first five books of the old testament so genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy he has these Memorized, knocked out, to a T, like you ask him any part of it, and he can rip this off. But not only is he a great rule follower, not only has he memorized many of these things, but he's looked to as a great teacher as well. People would follow him and come to him uh, to know and to understand how it is they should follow the laws and how they should follow God obey him and and also we see him here in these verses he's coming to Jesus at some level to vet him right so he holds some position of prominence and where we how we know this also is it says he's a ruler of the Jews so what we know is he's part of what's called the Sanhedrin so the Sanhedrin was basically a ruling body Of the Jews. So these individuals have significant authority within the nation of Israel. They would wield authority in various spheres of of life. So we oftentimes would think theologically that they have a lot of authority, but this stretched into all realms of life. So you can think legally and politically, like their authority stretched into every realm of life for the Jews. So Nicodemus has lots of significance in who he is, the positions that he holds, the power that he wields. Now a couple, of, or a couple of other things that we can note about Nicodemus in this story. He's coming to Jesus at night, and people have differing opinions. What does this mean that he's coming at night? Is he just so busy during the day that he's just going to sacrifice some sleep, and he's going to come and ask Jesus his questions and, and check him out or vet him or whatever at night because he's just a very busy dude. Uh, others think that uh, he's ashamed, uh, that he, he maybe shouldn't be seen hanging around Jesus, but he, and so he's going to do it under the cover of night rather than in daylight. So some people think that he's ashamed. Um, others think that you know, he's just doing his job, but in doing his job, that he also wants to make a personal inquiry, that that he, he actually has legitimate questions and he wants to really wrestle with who Jesus is, but he wants to do it under the guise of this is my job and I'm supposed to come and ask you these questions and check you out at some level. One thing that we can know what's going on here, for sure, because Jesus is always moving from The physical to the spiritual and we see this throughout the gospel of John as well He continually is going to move people from the physical to the spiritual So one thing that we need to glean from the fact that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus under the cover of night Is that he is living in spiritual darkness? This is Nicodemus's reality. He is living in spiritual darkness. That's his reality and we get this very clearly as we walk through these verses Secondly, little tidbit here is that he refers to Jesus as rabbi. And I think that this is both, uh, it has connotations that are both respectful and insulting. So I think it's respectful from the standpoint that he's calling Jesus a respected teacher. Not everyone gets called rabbi, okay? And he himself is looked at as a rabbi, Okay, but he is now referring to Jesus as a rabbi. So there is some level of respect that he is putting towards Jesus, especially given the fact that Jesus hasn't followed the formal route of education to become a teacher. He hasn't walked that path, but yet he is being referred to as a respected teacher. But on the insulting side, we've already in the first couple chapters, we begin to see Jesus revealed as something much more than a good teacher. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the true light. He is the Messiah who has come to rescue his people. He is the awaited one that Israel has been looking for for generations. And he's been referred to as merely a good teacher when he is God. And then lastly here, Nicodemus also says, We know you are a teacher come from God. So first of all, uh, general thought is that this is just Nicodemus coming to him, that there's not a plural, that there's not numerous people coming with him. This is just Nicodemus. And yet he talks in the plural. We. We know. Okay? Almost as though he's coming from the Pharisees and he wants the words that he's speaking to carry more weight. That it's not just me, it's us. It's we who are the ruler's of the jews we know you are a teacher come from god and what's really interesting here when you look at the pharisees throughout the gospels what we see in them is that they will repeatedly oppose jesus they will question him they will minimize the power that he is demonstrating they will demonize the truth that he is espousing they will disbelieve him all the way to the point that they put him on a cross and they kill him All the while, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know where you are coming from because of the signs that you are doing, and yet we will oppose you. We will question you. We will kill you. So Nicodemus makes his opening argument, and despite no explicit question from him, Jesus answers Nicodemus in a way that only Jesus can. In verse 3, we read, Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the Greek word here uh, that um, we translate again can also be translated from above. Okay, so and, and I think there's double meaning here. So the idea is you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. Okay? So in order to be saved, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, in order to be saved, even for you to simply see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. So what you are, Nicodemus, needs to be made new. You are not that. You are not born again. And for Nicodemus and anyone else who would hear this story, You could walk throughout Jerusalem. could walk throughout the nation of Israel and you would try to find people who would compare to Nicodemus and they would be few and far between. Devout, Pharisee, Jew of Jews, religious, professional, Sanhedrin. He stands above almost all Jews and Jesus is telling him, you are not in the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That massive pile of good deeds that you have, that you have stacked up over the course of your life, is insufficient. It's not good enough. And Nicodemus, like this just blows his mind. Like he just does not understand, and he asks these questions. Like can a a man who's old be born again? Does he climb into his mother's womb to be born again? And when we lock into Jesus being just completely literal, this is what happens, which we can read these questions and think that they're kind of goofy questions at some level, but I think that they're legitimate questions based on what he's processing, because Jesus so often speaks symbolically or is speaking spiritually when people think he's speaking physically, and this is one of those examples but nicodemus just doesn't get it because he doesn't have a category for this he has no idea of this reality his whole life he thinks i need to obey the laws that is how i draw near to god that is how i will be saved is if i obey the laws if i show this moral aptitude and jesus is saying not at all not at all nicodemus Nicodemus never thought he needed something outside of himself, but Jesus is telling him, you need something far beyond yourself. You are not good enough. And so Jesus answers Nicodemus' questions uh, both forcefully and respectfully, which I think is really interesting. When we think about um, interactions we might have with non-Christians, Right? they might say things that, maybe are offensive at times, maybe mocking at time, but to be able to speak both forcefully and respectfully is a great gift that we can give to others. So Jesus, in these next few verses, he's going to talk about two births. Okay, so we're going to talk about these two births, which are a physical birth and a spiritual birth. So first of all, the fleshly birth, or the first birth is a physical birth, Birth and, and what we need to see in this reality with this whole physical birth is that we do nothing, the, the baby does nothing in birth. Right? The baby had nothing to do with being conceived, the baby had nothing to do with being born. They're not pushing themselves out, the baby grew and was sustained due to nothing that they were doing, they were being given over and over, okay? And so when the ultrasound tech looks up on the screen and says, ah, it's a boy. Ah, just kidding, it's a girl. Uh, when, when they see that precious little baby up there, they're determining, they're, they're telling the parents what god already knows science is discovering what god already knows if if it has if the baby has a y chromosome or not right the baby had no choice in its gender no choice whatsoever it was determined for him or her the name that the baby will be given they, they have no choice in this now maybe a baby, or the child eventually will say, I I hate my name, and I'm going to go and change it, or I'm just going to go by my, maybe a middle name, or some other name. Like, that's possible, right? But to begin, the baby has no choice. The name is given to it, and this helps to form the baby's identity as well, right? So my children, they are the son and daughters, sons and daughters of Kevin and Casey. This is part of their identity. Their identity is rooted somewhat outside of them, and, and they have no choice in this whatsoever. And sometimes this is a really good thing, and sometimes in families it's a really brutal thing as well. But, as well. but the baby has no choice in much of this. And, and what we need to see in this is the baby's doing nothing to be born physically. And this reality, this, th- these aspects of physical birth typify the second birth, as well. But first, Galatians 5, I want to read this passage because this is talking about when a baby is born in the flesh, this is what is going to ultimately happen. Okay? So born in the flesh, now the works of the flesh are evident. This is how we're born and what we're born into. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul writes, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God pretty bleak right like this is what we are born into this these are our prospects in our first birth our physical birth but there's hope because there's a second birth which is spiritual it's supernatural it's a birth in which we are given new names rather than just being a child of Kevin or Casey or whomever our parents might be, we can become children of God. And that can become our identity, an identity that is pervasive, that can override anything else, no matter what destruction we might have in our physical human family, that we have a Father who holds us and cares for us and loves us and is faithful and never disappoints and has our best interests. So we get a new daddy who cleanses us and makes us new. And just like in our first birth, we have to see that in this second birth, we also do nothing. Jesus comes to us jesus rescues us and what we do the extent of what we do is we respond in faith with faith that god gives to us so jesus when he talked about salvation at another part in the gospels he says it is impossible to be saved for us it is impossible for us to be saved to save ourselves but not for God it is not impossible for God to save us Galatians 5 talks about So we talked about the works of the flesh but the fruit of the spirit the fruit of this second birth is this love joy peace patience kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So in both of these births, what we need to understand is that we have nothing to do with them. God is the one who saves us spiritually, physically when we are born, this is something our, our mom is pushing us out. Like our, our parents are the ones who, who help to conceive us. And, and so we need to understand that, that these are works of God. And then how this translates spiritually. We need to see that salvation is something that can be concrete. It, it is concrete. It's not something that changes. So when we think about our physical Birth and the aspects contained therein, if we think about we can change things of our physical birth, we can change, if we think that we can change who our parents are, if we think that we could determine our birth date at some level, if we think that we could change our gender at some level, what happens then when we think that we're in control that we can control these various aspects, if those things can change, if we can control those things in a manner that we can change them, then what this correlates to is that spiritually, our salvation is fluid. If aspects of our physical birth are fluid, the reality of our spiritual birth is also fluid. You see that? And, and this, this should terrify us. It should terrify us. If if we can strip away these realities, these aspects of our physical birth, what that means then is that we can never be sure of our salvation. It's not certain. Because we can lose it. God can't keep us. It's up to us like Nicodemus, am I doing enough? Will God be pleased with me today? Today? And so we have to see how Jesus is directly connecting our two births. There are aspects of our physical birth which are unchangeable. And this is good news for our spiritual birth because there are aspects. When we are saved, that cannot change. Because God does not lose what he has saved. And we should find unbelievable certainty and hope and freedom and joy in that reality. We cannot lose our salvation because God is the one who keeps us. So then Jesus is going to go on to describe our second birth with an example from nature. He's going to speak in verse 8 of the wind, which I think is pretty appropriate for this past week, right? Like we had some serious wind going on and, and nobody saw the wind. It was impossible for us to see the wind, but we heard it. I mean, I was kept up at night because I had this creak in our house when it would blow really hard right by my head. And there's nothing I could do about it, right? Like, I can't, I can't make the wind stop. I can't go and get a hammer and nails and go fix whatever it was that was creaking. And it only happens when it's 50-mile-per-hour wind, so it's not like I'm going to address it. We couldn't see the wind, but we could feel its effects. We could hear it. We could see the effects, Uh, that it was creating. I turned on my street on Tuesday, and that's the day that our garbage gets picked up. And every single garbage, except for one, was either laying in the street or had been blown over. It's like a tornado just came right down the street and just blew everything up, and then all this trash is everywhere. So we can see the effects of the wind, even though we couldn't see it in itself. So when John's writing here, the words for spirit and wind are actually the same Greek word. And so there's kind of double meaning going on here. It's kind of a play on words at some level. So the spirit is determining our new birth. He is the one who is working. And, and we might not always see it. Oftentimes we don't see it. Maybe don't even feel it at times. But we begin to see the ways in which... He works the new birth that he creates we might not see god's spirit come upon someone or to make somebody new but we will see the effects because god's work is undeniable god's work is undeniable now um i think at times maybe this conversation is a hard conversation when we start talking about god's work being undeniable because we can start to look at ourselves and measure us against others at times. Uh, Some of us, personality, we can just start feeling shame, like I'm I'm just not measuring up. I'm not doing enough. It's not good enough. Um, Others of us might get defensive when we start having this conversation about God's work being undeniable. But I think for all of us who are Christians, who have trusted in jesus we need to wrestle with this fact with this question of how do we see god's work in us what does that look like for us or what are those aspects in on the other side of the coin, of the coin what are the aspects of our life where we don't see god at work where does he seem to be absent or missing and why is it because he doesn't care, or is it because we've walled him off? We, we put up the yellow tape and say, don't enter in that part of my heart. But the reality is, when God makes us new, his work will be undeniable. He will change us, change us in unmistakable ways. And we and others should be able to see this, should be able to experience the outworking of this reality First John 3, 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When we encounter God's love, it will begin to shape our hearts in such a way that we begin to love others in ways that will shock them, that will surprise them, that will amaze others because we see how kind his love is for us. And it's given to us as this free gift. There's nothing that we can say, I've earned this. I've done these things, so this is why God loved me in this way. He pours out love graciously and then shapes our heart similarly so that we can love our enemies in the same way he has loved his enemies we can love others sacrificially in the same way he has loved us sacrificially and i think maybe this is a good time to just point out this fact that there's a massive difference between being good and being loved there's a massive difference between being good and being loved jesus is telling nicodemus you are not good you are not good enough. If Nicodemus is not good enough, what shot do we have? Like, I haven't memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. We have no shot whatsoever. But here's the thing. If we are good, and this is part of what we see in Nicodemus, if we are good, we don't need the gospel. If we are good, the gospel isn't beautiful to us because we view ourselves as good. And so as you think about your life, what do you emphasize? Do you emphasize being good or do you emphasize being loved? Because if we emphasize being good, it's it's not natural. It's not guaranteed that love follows. But if we emphasize being loved, I guarantee you goodness will follow because this is a fruit of God's Spirit. If we understand that He has loved us first, and that is why we are then able to love. 1 John says we love because He first loved us. If we put priority in our lives on this reality that we are loved rather than we are good, that gets us in right balance. It has things in the right order. And, and just theologically, the, the whole idea that we're talking about here is regeneration. So one theologian says it would define regeneration as a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life. In regeneration, God is recreating in a spiritual way sinful hearts so that we would identify with Jesus, his death and his resurrection that we would identify with his grace through faith by trusting in him and and then this reality it's not just like this little compartment of our lives but regeneration affects every part of our lives everything that we do the thoughts that we think the motivations that we have the desires that are within us the hopes that we have it affects everything and as we mentioned earlier, and we see this again with Nicodemus. This talk of two births utterly confounds him. And he's like, how can this be? How can this happen? So, have you ever felt out of control? Like really out of control. Like there's so much on your plate, like, like you can't handle all of it. What happens when you feel out of control? Do you feel overwhelmed? Feel like things start spinning? Maybe some of us get twitchy at some level. Some of us might get emotional. We might start to panic. Others of us might try and work really hard and like work ourselves to the bone to the point of exhaustion to try and check everything off that list. I think this is partially what Nicodemus is feeling. Why he's asking the questions that he's asking. He's overwhelmed. He's confused with everything that Jesus is saying. For years he's taught that God's kingdom is gained by obeying the commands, but Jesus is utterly destroying this paradigm. His whole world is turning upside down. It's against everything that he knows. It's no longer about what he does it's about what god does to him and i think when we get to this point when we understand that salvation is about god doing something to us it's about him making us born again it's about him coming to this old hard heart of flesh or heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh oftentimes we have two reactions. Some of us are offended. And we're like, what? Like Nicodemus, look at all these things I've done. What, what's with all that? And it's offensive to us that, that none of this counts for anything. So some of us might be offended by this reality. Others of us might be completely relieved, and I think this is God's intent, that when we, w- we understand that salvation does not rest on our shoulders, it's not about us getting up every day and running on that treadmill. It's about Jesus saving us, doing everything that is required so that we could be accepted in his eyes, so that we could become part of his Family, and we could bear his name, that it relieves us and it takes that yoke off of our shoulders and we don't have to trudge through every day with begrudging submission, fine. I'll do it because God says I'm supposed to do this to be a good Christian. And we can just let that go. And we can find the joy and the freedom that is found only in the gospel. There's no other story like this. This is why it is the best news in the world and why I'll continually implore you guys to believe it, to look at it, to see its beauty, to revel in it, to marvel at it, because there's no other story in our world like it. We see hints. We see hints in the movies that we watch, in the music that we listen to, In the paintings that we gaze at, we see hints of this story because it is so good, and it's what this world is yearning for. But nowhere other than Jesus do we see this story realized and fulfilled in this satisfying way. I think some of us might look at Nicodemus and be like, dude, it's all right, chill out. It's okay, this is all really mysterious. I'm with you. Right? Like, this, is a, this can be really confusing stuff, and just kind of give, give him an out at some level. But Jesus doesn't do it. Like, he just keeps his foot on the gas pedal. Like, he's putting his, his foot on his neck at some level, and he just keeps pressing in on Nicodemus. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying, you've heard this before, Nicodemus. You should know this. This is not the first time this is being introduced. But you're blind to it. And what Jesus is referencing, he's referencing what a number of Old Testament prophets have talked about. Jeremiah talked about this. Isaiah talked about this. I'm going I'm to read a, a couple verses from the prophet Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. So when, you, when we read water here, we, we need to think about what Jesus is saying in verse 5 of our text when he says, when one is born of water and the Spirit. Okay? So I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So the work of Jesus is cleansing, and that's what this water is signifying. It's cleansing these sinful people. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. This is why Jesus says that you must be born of water and the Spirit. And what's really interesting here is that this is spoken. God's speaking this to Ezekiel right before uh, a story that's known as the Valley of Dry Bones. Okay, So if you're not familiar with this story of the Valley of Dry Bones, there's this valley that God leads Ezekiel to and there's all these dead bones just laying there. And Ezekiel sees these, and and God helps him understand, this is a picture of Israel. This is my people, my nation. We are spiritually dead. Or he says, you are spiritually dead. And he tells Ezekiel, tell these bones to rise up and live. And Ezekiel does. And these bones rise up. And God is giving him a picture of what he's going to do in later days. He is going to take dead people, and he is going to speak life into them, and he is going to raise them up so that they walk again. And this is a picture of what he does spiritually for any of us who are trusting in Jesus, who have moved from death to life. So he's telling Nicodemus, it has been spoken many years prior and i'm telling you again right now you must be born again but he says in verse 11 but you do not receive our testimony you're not receiving what i'm telling you right now Jesus is saying, We both speak of what we know. Nicodemus, you speak of what you know, you speak of what you see. I'm speaking of what I know and what I have seen. But Nicodemus, what you have seen and what you know is severely lacking. My people need more, they need something different. So listen to what I'm saying, Nicodemus. Listen to my testimony and believe it. Be changed. Be moved from death to life. Let me make you new again. And then in verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is another title for Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is, if you want to see God's kingdom, if you want to go to God's kingdom, the only way is with the one who has been there, with the Son of Man who is Jesus. He is the one who brings heaven to us, and also he is the one who brings us to heaven. And here is how Jesus is going to do this. Now, if you haven't noticed, John, as he's been writing in these first couple of chapters, has repeatedly made a distinction between Moses and Jesus. Moses representing the law. Jesus representing the new way, the new covenant, grace and truth. And we see this happening here again in verses fourteen and fifteen, as it reads, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is referencing a story from the book of Numbers, and it's in chapter twenty-one. We're not going to read it, but just to summarize it. So God has led his people who are wandering in the wilderness. He's led them in defeat of one of their enemies. And so just after this defeat, they, they pick up camp, they start moving again, and um, the Israelites just start complaining. Like, oh man, we got to do this again. You give us this food that you give us all the time. We had everything we needed in Egypt. Why'd you take us out of there? Why are you doing this? And they just bitterly complaining against Moses and against God, and God sends these fiery serpents in their midst. And these serpents begin to bite people, and they, people begin to die. And so the people start crying out to Moses and to God, help us, rescue us. And God tells Moses, okay, put a bronze serpent on a pole. When people look at this bronze serpent, they will be healed. And this is what happens. People look at the bronze serpent, they're healed. They're spared from death. And so now, Jesus, he's saying, that was a foreshadowing of what I'm going to do. In the same way that that bronze serpent was raised up and people looked at it and were saved, I will also be raised up in a greater way. And people will look at me and they will be saved. They will be healed from their sickness of sin. They will be forgiven of their sin. And they will be healed from the deadly bites of the ultimate serpent who is satan and so this gets us to our gospel application to be saved is to look at jesus who is the raised up one to believe that his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for your sins and so the call is for us to believe in that sacrifice To believe in what Jesus has done for us, to believe that we are loved, not that we are good, but that we are loved. And in that, Jesus will make us new. He will take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He will take that which is dead and he will raise it up to life. In the same way that he conquered the grave, he will do that in our dead, sinful hearts. And so, for us, it, if, if you're not a Christian, or maybe even if you find yourself questioning, oh, am I born again at some level? This, this is an invitation to believe in this man who was lifted up on a cross for your sin. That you would know the freedom and the joy that's found in the gospel, that you would not have to live a life trying to measure up, trying to be good enough to please God, hoping that God will accept you. That is not God's desire for you. You are not good, but you are loved. You are loved. And Jesus wants you to know his love and to be changed by his love if you are a Christian, I think we need to wrestle with kind of this obvious question that's proposed, which is, have I been born again? And if so, how do I see this? Where do I see the evidence in my life? But have I been born again? And and I'm not talking about simply asking Jesus into your heart. Because I think part of at least modern evangelicalism, churches have put so much emphasis on getting people to pray a prayer and get decisions from people, almost as though like people then become a statistic at some level. And, and it's not wrong to desire this for people. That's a good thing, but, but what ends up happening oftentimes is we determine our value based on how many of those decisions we can get. And then it becomes just cranking as many decisions out as we can. And it's not truly about helping people understand how Jesus changes them. And so I'm implicating churches in this. My people at some level. Other pastors in this reality that we lose sight of what's really important. But have we been born again? Are we just playing church? we just kind of going through the motions, doing what culture or church culture would think is what a good Christian would do? Or has Jesus radically gripped us? Have we seen the beauty of the gospel in such a way that it takes our breath away? And if not, we should ask ourselves, why? What am I missing? Because the Bible seems to suggest there's a whole lot more, that this this is completely changing people. It's making people new in every part of themselves. And if that's not true for me, why? Why is that? Now I think, oftentimes in churches the tendency for people who would be in my role is to kind of ease that tension and if you if you feel that press in your heart that that you would want me and i would maybe cave to that um, desire that pressure to just ease that tension or let the air out at some level but i don't want to do that i want you guys to wrestle with this to feel the weight of this because this isn't, this isn't like a decision about what you're eating for lunch, right? Like this is, this is the most significant thing in your life. This is the way by which you will have joy, unending joy in the midst of the darkest of days, how you can walk through the deepest of valleys and the darkest of nights and still cling to hope. And so I don't want to let the air out on this. So if you find yourself thinking, wrestling. And it, it moves you to fear. It moves you to shame at some level. It moves you to questioning. I don't, I don't want you to just feel like you're in a spot where you're between a rock and a hard place. Well, I'm supposed to wrestle with this, but then what? Like there's no place to turn. Well, that's what the church is intended to be. And, and so just to be explicit, Like, if you feel this, write it on your communication card. Talk to me afterwards. Send me an email. Or if you have someone else that you feel like you can confide in with this and ask the questions to really wrestle with this. And if you find yourself feeling shame, we read at the beginning of our service Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 verse 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. If you feel shame and you feel like, I can't talk to somebody about this because that's not what good Christians do, that's exactly the lie that Satan wants you to believe. The worst thing that you can do is to stuff this. It will suppress any chance that you have of having real, living faith in Jesus. And so don't stuff it. Jesus does not want you to live in fear. He does not want you to live in shame. That is not his desire at all. He wants, if this is a dark area of your heart, he wants to shine light on that so that you might have freedom, so that you might have joy. We sang in our first couple songs of an awareness of God's presence in our lives. And of an experience of the glory of God's goodness. Do you have a robust experience of God's presence and of His goodness? Do you sense that? Do you feel that? Is He near to you? We sang of a peace that we know even when heart and flesh fail, when life seems to be fraying at the seams. And hope seems lost. Like all we have is this thread that we're holding on to. Can you say, because of Jesus, it is well. It is well. I sat across the table yesterday from a friend of mine who has completely wrecked his life with sin. And he's lost everything. His job his church, his family, everything. And in the darkest of night, he sees the devastation of his sin, of how he has jacked everything up. And just now, he's beginning to see what repentance looks like, what it means to turn to God, of how deeply and desperately he needs Jesus. And in the darkest of night, he is being made new. And idols, even the idol of wanting his marriage uh, to not be divorced, like even this, letting go of that, letting that be stripped away because he has so severely hurt his family and his wife. And he needs to learn to let that go and trust God to do what he will do with that. But for him to cling to Jesus, to let Jesus make him new, that's what he needs. Jesus was ripped up, and he was killed so that we would have life, so that we would be born again. We sang, Jesus has overcome Whatever it is that you face, Jesus is bigger than that. He has overcome it. He has conquered sin and death and hell. So believe in that. Rise up in Jesus. Trust in him. Know that he is over all, that he has conquered all. He is what you need today and every day of your life. And then, as he comes in, as he brings joy and new life and hope into you, you then get to walk into this dark and dying world and bring that same hope and light and life to others who are desperately in need of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you do not leave us in a state of despair. You love us so deeply, so completely, that you have done everything, absolutely everything that is needed so that we can be saved, so that where we are in bondage, we can know freedom, so that where we are clinging to or believing falsity, we can know and believe truth. God, that where we are despairing, we can know joy. So God, would you rest heavy upon us? Holy Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do. Make us alive. Make us new. And I pray that our individual lives and the corporate life of this church would reflect it. That others would be drawn to the light because they see the light in and through us, and that's your light shining through us, pervading, driving out the darkness. Do your work as only you can, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. If anyone wants to observe the Lord's Supper, uh, it's in the back, and I invite you guys to do it during these songs.